Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Welcome back to She Dynasty. I am super excited. Today, I am going to be sitting down with Wendy Zomnier, the co-founder and chief creative officer of Urban Decay. Wendy started Urban Decay in 1996 with her co-founder, Sandra Lerner. They have been early pioneers in the bold makeup scene, launching bright, bold colors when everyone else in the beauty industry was sticking with neutral tones. They've also been one of the top makeup brands ever since. Before we get started, I want to reintroduce uh, my assistant, Callie Kevistad, and she is also the PR coordinator for She Dynasty, and she does an incredible job of getting all these uh, powerful women on the show. And I know that this one was especially, especially important to her. I remember when she walked in my office to tell me that Wendy had accepted. She did a little happy dance. So hi, Callie. Hello. How are you? A little embarrassed after that, but oh. <laughs> excited to be here. Tell me why you were so excited about hearing from Wendy today. I am a, as I've said before on the podcast, I am a beauty obsessed person. I hoard products at my house and I've been using Urban Decay since I've been using makeup. So I was so excited to hear that she was going to be on She Dynasty. And you're not joking because on the drive down here, I saw you pull out like five or six different <laughs> makeup items out of your bag that were yeah. Urban Decay. Hoarder is the the polite version of what I am. <laughs> awesome. So we are outside of our home studio today. And so it might sound a little different. And we are here at Urban Decay's uh, corporate office. And we walked in and immediately saw all the incredible Urban Decay branding. And it was just like such a pop of inspiration. Um, There's this huge mural that has all of like a giant collage all over it that reminded me of my high school notebook, which took me way back. And obviously uh, when this brand was born. So that was really, really cool. There was also samples of all the makeup. Um, We were like uh, little girls in a candy store. (laughs) So Wendy's going to be here in a few minutes, and I'm excited for us to get started. I can't wait. All right, so let's get started. So hello, Wendy. Hi. How are you? I am having a great day. It's a beautiful day here in Newport Beach. It is. We're in the middle of winter, and it is sunny as usual in Southern California. I know, and perfect temperature. I feel so lucky and blessed to live here. Every December, I have this kind of revelation um ever since the first summer or first winter I moved here um I moved from Chicago and I remember that first December running on the beach in shorts and thinking how can this be my life right and every December I kind of have that same like recall of that moment and just have a lot of gratitude for this beautiful place I live in well you and Callie have something in common she's from Chicago too yeah Yeah. I've been in Southern California two years now and almost daily I have that moment where I'm like wow this is real I can wear a mini skirt and Chicago is an amazing city I mean it is one of the best Mm -hmm. world class I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, so I have no idea what you guys are talking about. (laughs) Anyways, I am bummed right at this moment that this is not a visual show because I am like sitting here looking at how beautiful your makeup is. And I was thinking in my mind, like, how is she going to do her makeup today? Like, I was just wondering, like, is it going to be toned down or is, you know, is it going to be full in Urban Decay style? 
and I wish people could see it. It is just like stunning, bold, shimmery pinks and a very bold uh, kind of fuchsia lip. And you just look stunning. Oh, thank you. It's making me want to be more bold with my makeup choices. I'm always so nervous to uh, try things that are bold, but maybe I need you to come over and show me what to do. I think um, it's important to experiment. And what I always tell people is the best time to do it is when you before you wash your face at night try something new, try a new color, because you're just going to wash it off. You know, it gives you a chance to experiment. I actually do different things on different eyes, especially if I've got a vision in my head of something I want to try. Right. So maybe before you leave today, I should give you some of this sort of iridescent purple and some peaches, and you should go home and experiment with it. I would love that. You know, it's interesting just because you and I are, it seems like we're similar in age. I could be wrong. But, um, you know, as you age, there's always this question of, you know, should you tone your makeup down? Are you allowed to be bold with your colors and wear sparkle? And like literally you are like blowing everything in my mind about what I'm not supposed to do. So thank you. I actually needed to see that. Well, I think I do. I have changed my makeup, though, as I've gotten older. So uh, I think the important thing is you don't have to cut out the sparkle. You don't have to cut out the different colors. You just have to apply them in a different way. Right. So I used to love like a heavy, smoky eye. It was my favorite thing. And I would do it in a lot of different colors. But that heaviness now is too much. So now I need to focus on creating lightness and space. And I still use great touches of color. And it's more about like creating elongation in the eye and creating lots of dimension without creating too much depth and darkness. So it's just about reapplying in different techniques. Yeah, so I need to learn. We could do a whole podcast on we, that if you We want. really could. And it's really important for people to hear. And again, we have some photos that we've taken, so we will definitely post them. But okay. your makeup is bold and beautiful and it looks perfectly age appropriate. Oh, thank you. So good job. Thanks. All right. So we're going to jump right in because everyone who listens to She Dynasty wants to hear so much about your journey, your four S's, um, which we're going to go into and how you got to where you are today. Such an inspiration to so many women. It's about one of your very, very first makeup memories. Well, I think one of my first makeup memories, I used to watch my mom put her makeup on and I always wondered, well, why does she just put on foundation and not like crazy color? And I would always sneak into her drawer and like play with her makeup and one of my first memories is really the smell of the lipstick yes and you know now we use like so many more high-tech ingredients things that are cleaner but back then like the oils in the lipstick would pretty quickly go slightly rancid and so lipstick old lipstick has this smell to it it and does yes i really do you know like those smell memories are really imprinted in your brain like mm-hmm. the shampoo you used in high school like if you use it again you'll be like oh my god it was like right going right back to high school So I have that same thing with old lipstick. When I smell it, I go right back to that exact drawer. I know exactly what it looks like. And she um, she had like all kinds of great makeup, but she was... But she probably didn't have a lot of bold colors, right? Because there wasn't a lot of option back then? Or there, did she have some? Well, she had some, but people didn't really wear... They loved the idea of that blue eyeshadow. There was that 70s blue eyeshadow right. moment. But... The color was never flattering because it was so chalky and not pigmented. And I mean, a lot of that is how we ended up with Urban Decay because the makeup wasn't performing, but people wanted color. Okay. Um, I heard you tell a story about a priest who commented on how much makeup you were wearing one time when you went to service. Tell us that story. Well, 
it was uh, after church and he said, you know, I think, Wendy, I think you're really hiding behind that mask of makeup. And I enjoyed wearing makeup. I loved it. And I was that kid. I got sent home from school in eighth grade for wearing too much makeup in Fort Worth, Texas. So that's really hard to do in Texas to get home, sent home from school for wearing too much makeup. So this priest was like, I just think you're hiding. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not hiding at all. I'm telling you something about myself. I'm showing you who I am. I'm expressing myself through my makeup, my choice of color, how I put it on. And to me, it was like fashion. And so I felt it was a real epiphany moment for me to be able to to understand like this is a form of self-expression it's not about conforming to a beauty ideal or trying to be someone else it was really about self-expression yeah it's it's interesting how there was such a preconception of older generations how wearing too much makeup meant that you were trying to hide something where now it's so much about just telling the world who you are it's it's like almost the opposite and I'm wondering why some of that was um, even invented or born just because well, makeup is such, I mean, it's not any different than putting on like a red jacket, right? Yeah. Well, I always like to say, like when I hear people say what you just said, I like to say, oh, mission accomplished, Urban Decay. Like that's what we were trying to do right. 23 years ago when we started. You know, if you think back, the reason people would say that, oh, wearing too much makeup is bad is because there was an idealized vision of what beautiful was. And it wasn't determined by any of us. It was determined by a bunch of people that had enough money to run advertising and make us all feel a little less than. Correct. And so now, you know, thanks to social media and the internet, we've taken back the power as people and anyone can be a beauty influencer. Like the most, uh, like, 20 years ago, the person that's the most unlikely person to be a beauty influencer is probably now a huge beauty influencer. It's almost like the more perfect you are, the the more people reject it. Right. It seems, right? Well, I think there's that perfection piece and people, you know, there's... People are craving real. They're craving real. They are craving real, which is really refreshing. Okay. Um, Okay, so let's talk about when you were growing up. You did a lot of beauty pageants, and obviously at the time that was very socially acceptable. Yes. And times have changed. So tell us a little bit about that time in your life and your perception of pageants today and what they mean. Well, I did one beauty pageant. I I only did Miss Texas. and Kind of um, a big one. Kind of a big one. Um, So I think I learned so much from that experience. I learned how to sell myself. You had to go get sponsors, like the gowns and the this. All of it was really expensive. My parents weren't going to fund that. Like some people just had their parents like funding the whole thing. My parents were like, this is your deal. So I, I entered because I wanted to try to win the car. So um, What kind of car was it? It was like a, I remember it was a Subaru. It was nice. It was a nice car. Nice. So I was like, I need a That's car. Exciting. I wanted to win the car. I loved that I had to go out and sell myself to different local businesses. Mm -hmm. And then I learned how to play one off the other. Like I'd go to one real estate agent and go, well, you know, the guy down the street sponsored me. And so then I would like sort of like nudge him into sponsoring me as well. And so I learned a lot about personal selling, Mm -hmm. about Mm self-confidence, about putting yourself out into the world. I learned far more from the experience of preparing to go than I actually did at the pageant itself, which wasn't like the best experience. It was fine, but it was... Were you shy at the time to go and ask people to sponsor you or did it come very naturally? I think 
it's something that's in me, but I think that first step is always hard in anything you do. So any endeavor you want to take in life, like just crossing that threshold is the hardest part. And then once you've crossed it, it's almost like, oh, you know, the Absolutely. skies open up and like, and then it just started coming more naturally to you. Way more naturally. It's a little similar to me with She Dynasty. So I'm not sure if you know this, but my real job is that I own and run an advertising agency. I'm the executive creative director. And She Dynasty is a passion project of mine. And, and so a year ago, I had this dream of starting a podcast. And I have, I am so nervous of my voice and being on camera. It's like, I like to be behind the scenes. And I turned on the mic, I just did it, and now it feels like it just comes natural. So I think it's a really good um, kind of point for our listeners to take away. You well, know? I think you have a great soothing voice. Well, thank it's you. It's really nice. I appreciate Easy to it. talk to. I appreciate that. All right, so I want to talk about one of your uh, early snags. You mentioned in your pre-interview that one... You mentioned in your pre-interview that your parents didn't believe in your goodness. I want to hear what you meant by that. Well... It's a more recent thing where I've had a couple of speaking engagements and it's been a really hard thing for me to wrap my head around because my mom has come back and said, you know, I want you to be careful about what you say to those people. I want, you know, she actually in the last one said to my sister, she was really worried about what I might get up and say. And I actually was speaking at my university as part of the president's lecture series. Mm -hmm. 700 people came to hear me talk about entrepreneurship and about starting a business. And it just really, it cuts to the core that your mom who believed in me and raised me and really turned me into the person I was like now doesn't believe in my inherent goodness that I might get up and say, you know, encourage people to do things that are amoral or wrong. And I've had to like go, you know what, mom, if you can't be a positive force, then you shouldn't come. Right. So maybe she's trying to, I'm just trying to think of like what is kind of, you know, spawning that it might be just a way of trying to protect you maybe. No, I think it's that, um, you know, I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. Uh, Okay. And I think that has a lot to do with, I think she really believes like, oh, I've moved to California and I have all these liberal views. And, you know, my message when I do speaking engagements is all about like, hey, here's lessons I've learned along the way. And usually I'm telling them like, listen to what the you know older people in your life have to say because they have great advice so it's kind of i i find it ironic because i feel like i'm actually kind of old ladyish up there like you know like listen to your elders and uh do you know take care of your body and respect yourself and there's a lot of that messaging and what i talk about Mm -hmm. so i find it pretty ironic that she's always afraid of what i'm gonna say it's obviously probably been pretty wonderful to for her or for your entire family to watch kind of you know the your growth and your success has she been by your side the whole time i she has been but I don't think, I think until recently, I think my parents literally thought I was like selling extra makeup out of the back of my car. Like, I don't think they really understood the scale of the business or what it was or what it meant within the beauty industry. Totally. I think they just, because they're not in the business themselves. It's hard for them to understand. I think they didn't have any idea. Yeah. My dad is a hardcore businessman and he always says to me what are you guys doing over there wasting time taking pretty pictures and making videos like it's such a waste of time you should have been a doctor or a lawyer like he doesn't get it right so I can totally relate to parents not like grasping what it is you do um so do you feel like you had an entrepreneurial spirit at a at a young age is it something that kind of um blossomed later in life 
Well, I think I always wanted that. I remember like making these hideous little necklaces. I would burn like plastic straws, which, you know, I mean, we'd never do that now, but (laughs) plastic straws. And I would make necklaces out of them by stringing them onto pieces of yarn. And I like always wanted to make something and I tried to like sell them to people and no one wanted them. But I just always had this idea that I wanted to make something and make something and be creative with my life. I think it's interesting because I I have interviewed so many successful women and I love to find patterns. And what um, one of the patterns that I see over and over again is that as children, people were often making and trying to sell something. So I've heard it multiple times and it's always, you know, it wasn't even about what it was they were making. It was like the thrill of making something and somebody wanting it. So it sounds like you're uh, right there with everybody else. Okay. So you graduated at the University of North Texas. Right. And you studied marketing. Is that correct? No, I actually studied. I was in the journalism department. Okay. And so I was studying writing, but then I actually switched and did a more advertising PR focus in the end. I had strangely found passion. I had a crazy teacher. Her name was Ernestine Farr. Mm-hmm. And, she, you know, she opened up this ad sales class that everyone in journalism had to take. And um, at the time, we had a physical paper newspaper at the school because it was back in the day. Uh, You had to go like they would give you some clients and you had to go sell ads. Mm -hmm. And your grade was predicated on, you know, your sales quota. basically. And she was basically like, no one gets an A in this class. And I was like, well, I'm getting an A in this class. So I ended up really loving this process of going out and meeting people and trying to figure out what they needed and not just selling them an ad, but really selling them new business and like helping them build their business. So she was a big spark in your life. She was a big spark in my life. And um, I ended up taking over the business side. I was the ad sales manager for two and a half years at my university and it paid really well. And I love that. So I, I actually then had a passion and I went into advertising like you did. Yes, you did. So we have that in common. So one of your first jobs in beauty, though, was working at Elizabeth Arden at the makeup counter. Was yes. this before college? No, this was during college. During college. So this was like a summer, you know, during the summer. Okay. Um, I applied for, you know, a job, an opening. I was like, I love makeup. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I worked behind an Elizabeth Arden counter at an old family-owned Fort Worth department store downtown. There was almost no traffic. It was before the downtown of Fort Worth had been revitalized. Okay. The clientele was probably older than my grandmother. That's who I was working with. But one of the things I remember about that was that I went to a training and I loved that I got to like go to the training and learn all about application. I was so excited. And they gave us a bunch of skincare, which was way too heavy for my greasy young skin. But I got a dark purple Elizabeth Arden eyeshadow in this beautiful case, and I used it every single day. And I just love that shade. Is that some of the inspiration for all the purple around us here today? Well, maybe a little subconsciously, but more of a common color now in the beauty industry. But Mm -hmm. it used to be very, very different. Mm -hmm. Like there was no other company that had purple. Purple really kind of stood for a unique kind of out of the box person. And that's really what we wanted to project with Urban Decay at the beginning. So purple has been with the company since the beginning. Since day one. Callie and I were talking about this. There are people that are diehard fans of purple, right? You're either in or you're out with purple. Yes. Do you have do you have purple clothing? I do have purple clothing. I I like wearing purple when we do sales things. I think it's inspirational for the team. And so a lot of times I wear purple. 
Perfect. But not all the time. Okay. So do you feel like working at Elizabeth Arden was another step in your passion to ignite and start Urban Decay? Well, I think I didn't know it. You weren't working there thinking, I'm going to start a makeup No, company. not at all. It wasn't really in the scope of reality that you would take on these like giant... Be- you know, like the L'Oreal's and the Estee Lauder's and the Cody's of this world, right. you would not take them on. Like there was no possibility that right. that was an unbreakable fortress. And it really took someone like Sandy Lerner mm-hmm. to say, you know what, I want to start a makeup company. And I was like, you know, thinking to myself, is this possible? And then I was like, well, she thinks it's possible, then it's possible. Because she had done it with Cisco. Like she had broken down all these barriers in tech as a woman. And so I was completely inspired and mentored by her. And I was like, yes, we can do this. Let's do it. Where did did you meet Sandy? I met Sandy through, so my best friend in Chicago, her Mm ex-fiance was Sandy's business manager. Oh, okay. And he was on the phone with her, you know, uh, you know, always calling her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, oh, you should call my friend Wendy, you know. And that's kind of how it got going. But because she was interested in makeup as well? Or what was the reason to make the connection? I think he called her and said, you know, Sandy keeps talking about like starting a new company and maybe it's going to be makeup. And she was like, well, then you should call Wendy. Right. The power so, of networking and make I people know. making connections. So well, important. you know, there's always that. There's that. And I can't remember what the quote is or exactly what the quote is. But I always tell people, you know, it's when preparation meets opportunity. It's a phenomenon known mm-hmm. as luck. Yeah. Right. Sure. And I think, you know, you can just prepare yourself for the opportunities that will come your way. And if you're prepared, then grab it. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like, um, you know, obviously somebody made a connection. And I felt like for the first I want to say like 18 years of my career, I kind of just kind of put my head down because my business partner was the new business guy. And so the way our company was kind of, we, we shook hands and he was the guy who was going to bring in the business and I was going to execute the business. So I never felt this need to network for many, many years. And I realized um, a few years back that I was missing a huge opportunity. And, you know, networking comes very, very naturally to a lot of men. And I don't think that women do it as well as men. Obviously, there is um, exceptions to that. And so when I meet women that can do it so well and who have made these connections because they were bold enough to just take a meeting or meet somebody new, I think that, you know, the lesson to be learned is Go meet people that you wouldn't normally, you know, take a a coffee with or a lunch with because you never know where things are going to go. And one meeting can change your entire life, right? Because if you never would have made that phone call, who knows what you'd be doing today? I mean, I'm sure you'd still be very successful, but might be a very, very different path. Might be. So let's talk about um, the name. And I know you get asked this a lot, but everybody wants to know why Urban Decay? Well, Back when we started, everything about makeup was sweet. It was super girly, feminine, and we wanted to inject some edge and some boldness and some badass into beauty. Right. We kept saying it's we want it to be edgy and urban and different and urban something and urban something. And someone said, well, call it Urban Decay. The name just has, like, it kind of rolls off the tongue really well. It does. And I remember thinking to myself, like, well, everyone kind of likes it, but I'm not really sure as a, you know, ex-marketer. Scary. It's scary, scary name, right? Yeah. But then I was actually in New York. I was walking down the street and it was in the winter. And I remember looking at the like trees without the leaves on them. I remember looking at a brick wall that was kind of falling apart. I remember looking at a rusting fire escape and thinking like, 
all of this is so it's falling apart but it's also so beautiful Mm -hmm. and to me it was like you have to look a little deeper to see the beauty Mm -hmm. and that's really like at that moment I realized like this name is perfect I don't need to like go back and sit down with Sandy or David or anybody that was involved in the genesis of the company and kind of sell them on you know a different alternate name like urban decay is what it should be because that is really what we're talking about we're talking about going deeper than what things look like on the surface right and you know people often put a lot of pressure on what to name a company and so much of what brings that to life obviously is what you put behind it the name is nothing until you put a brand behind it right? right urban decay was born in the 90s which was a very angsty time and um, what was interesting, as you know, like the, the 80s were kind of the opposite. It was very kind of girly and prissy and like light, like colored makeups and springy right. and shoulder pads and, you know, big curly big hair. hair. Yeah, <laughs> kind of feminine. And then all of a sudden everyone got like angry and not in a bad way, kind of in a good way. It was almost like they needed their tr- like true feelings to come out. Right? right. It didn't seem like a dark time. It just felt like, yeah, I can finally like express myself. Right. So well, it's that. It was a generation or a decade that was similar to what you go through as an early teenager. Totally. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So. I remember putting on my my jeans, my Doc Martens, tying a flannel shirt around my waist and putting on my Urban Decay in high school yeah. and feeling like this this feels good. There was something about that that felt really awesome. My, my go-to were Docs in a baby doll dress. Right? Right. Absolutely. That baby doll dress was huge. Were there any backup names that you guys were thinking of? Um, no, that was it. That was it. I don't, have a, I don't have a good story for a backup name at all. I mean, I was kind of co- considering, like, should it just be urban? Should it just be urban beauty? And But then, I, like I said, I had that epiphany in New York, and it just seemed to be the right thing to really portray what we were trying to say. Right. Because I think that's one of the most important messages that we brought was that it's okay to be you. It's okay to express yourself through your makeup. And you don't have to look like, you know, the supermodel of the moment back then was Paulina Porzkova. And you don't have to look like her. You can still be beautiful. Right. All right. I want to go back to your partnership with Sandy. Okay. So partnerships are hard. Um, they either totally work or not. They're kind of like marriages. So what's the secret to your partnership? Why was it so successful? What did you both bring different to the table? Well, I think she brought a really interesting, like, fearlessness in terms of a vision and I think I brought sensibility that understood that and in terms of like the first time I sat down with her I would we were talking about like different nail polish colors and uh, I was like let's put them in medicine bottles like I I think we had a really good ability to just bounce ideas off of each other and build on each other's concepts and I really learned from her like I said so much of this idea of fearlessness to just try things and go for them and take risks so she was kind of like the wind beneath your wings in a sense she taught me so much I mean are you guys the same age we are not the same age she's a little older but she was incredibly more successful than me mm-hmm. so <laughs> you know I really really looked and I so still she had do more, look up to, she had a lot of business experience she already. had a lot of business experience with Cisco I mean she had launched a major company she right. had made inroads into a male-dominated industry which is huge which is huge she you know i mean there were so many firsts that she did like you can't help but admire her i mean she rode a harley she dyed her hair purple like before it was cool like she was the super cool like and and then you walked into her house and she had this like 
French Maison in the middle of San Jose. It wasn't San Jose. It was Los Altos. Uh-huh. And it was like the most elegant French garden. And then here she was in like all the, her rocker the gear and like the opposite person. of our house. And it. it was just, I loved all the contrasts. And she was kind of inspiring as a person to kind of uh, vibe off of. Beautiful. So you guys sat down. You had this great idea. And I always say this on the podcast, everybody, not everybody, but so many people have great ideas. But there's a huge difference between someone who has a great idea and then the ability to kind of turn it into reality. So what's the first step to making this into a real company? I think the first step was we went and we actually, we went to New Jersey together and we mixed nail polish colors. So you went to like a lab? We went to a lab and we sat there at the lab and we mixed nail polish colors and we brainstormed names. I think the first step was really, you know, we had all of these like little samples and we had some bottles and I went and got, um, you may remember the ad comp rub downs. Yes. Right. So I, I had do. a logo mm-hmm. and I like literally painstakingly did rub downs on all the bottles. And um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I would, it. I would say one of the first, like, I think the key to turning things into reality is to be tenacious and resourceful. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier now with the internet to be resourceful than it was. But I remember my uh, boyfriend at the time, his friend was a swimsuit rep. He was driving down the coast making calls and he had gone surfing and he called me, said, look, I've got a meeting can I just pop in and use the shower before I head mm-hmm. off? And I said, sure. And he came in and I realized he was, his meeting was with Nordstrom. And I was like, I would love to get, because there was no Sephora nor Ulta at this time. Of right? course, yeah. And I was like, I'd love to get this into Nordstrom. So while he was in the shower, I pulled his buyer list out of his bag. I wrote down all the names and numbers. I put it back in the bag. I let him drive away and then I picked up the phone. And I started calling the swimsuit buyers and saying, hey, you know, so-and-so said you'd give me the name of the cosmetics buyer and they all gave me the, the name and information because he already had credibility he already had so credibility right yeah yeah so, so i did so i mean important. it was not terribly honest but it was sometimes you do what you need to do you do what you got to do so what's the lesson for our listeners from that story do you think i think the lesson is i didn't do anything illegal no, but sometimes maybe you gotta like push boundaries when you gotta get stuff done is and he, entrepreneurship is he mad at you today do you i don't think he knows <laughs> unless he's listening to this podcast and i didn't name him by name but he probably knows that's hilarious um but i think as entrepreneurs you know it's all about getting from point a to point b And how are you going to get down that path? Because it's really important to ramp up quickly and get the thing off the ground and get some momentum going. Of course. And in the beginning, you were probably doing everything, right? I was doing everything. And I mean, I was doing dumb things like I didn't know at the time, you know, on the UPC, like I had called because you can go on the internet. I called the Uniform Code Council. I got assigned a number and then you pick the the stock keeping unit number, which is the next five numbers. Right. And then there's an algorithm to give you a check digit at the end, which is the 12th number in any of those codes that you see on the back of products, right? And I literally was sitting there doing the algorithm on my calculator myself for all of them. And then um, I called the printer was about halfway through and said, Oh, I've got some UPC codes, I'm done with about half of them. And they're like, well, we just have a program that does that. And I was like, you know, you run into all of these like crazy things you didn't know but But at the time you rolled up your sleeves I rolled up my sleeves and I just started doing what I had to do you know one of the women who I interviewed um, earlier was Susie Weiss Fishman the owner of OPI nail polish Uh and she tells the story about how when she started the company once it turned over to be a nail polish company her favorite thing to do in the company was to help the factory workers pack the bottles to make sure that things were shipped on time 
And she said that all the way into almost the day she, you know, not retired because she's still an ambassador of the brand, but she sold the company. She still likes to spend most of her time down there. That's where she was the happiest in the company. And I loved, loved that story because she started with kind of her, you know, sleeves rolled up and she kind of ended there as well. So just brought her a lot of joy. I find that really to be true. Like one of the things that makes me happiest is just to sit and with, you know, some fairly junior people that are like coming up with shade names and just like sit and brainstorm with them or going back to your beginnings, going back to the beginnings. It makes you really happy. I mean, listening to new perspectives. Definitely. All right. So a snag that you brought up, um, which is one that anyone who is an entrepreneur or has a business can relate to is cash flow was an issue at times. Right. And it's, you know, it seems very glamorous to have a business, especially one like Urban Decay. But talk about the realities of um, cash flow and how that affected you at the time. Well, I think what people don't realize is that you can be successful and you can be making money on paper and have no cash in the bank. And it happens a lot in the early, early phases of companies, especially when you're trying to grow and ramp up and you're hiring new people. Maybe you have a big, um, you know, a big order from a vendor, but you've got to pay your vendor before you get the money back from. So you run into these cash flow situations where you're like, yeah, but I have all this money coming, but I don't have any to like pay the staff. Right, you got to figure it out. You've got to figure it out. So I know like my husband worked for Volcom for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was one of their, he was their original CFO and took them through being public. Uh-huh. And, you know, Volcom factored. They used a factor, mm-hmm. which if, you know, your listeners don't know what that means, it's a bank that will take your pending um, invoices from uh, customers mm-hmm. and they will pay them for you. They will pay you the money and then they'll collect the invoice later. But of course they take a fee for that. Right, but so, sometimes you but, gotta do but it. But that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other ways to do it is we were really lucky. Sephora would often help, you know, with the terms you know, and relax on their standard terms to help their smaller up and coming brands with a lot of potential really be able to, and I don't know if they still do that, but they were able to help us through some tough times in terms of inventory because they wanted the stock to sell. Like they knew they could sell it, but we were like, you know, we just don't have it. And a lot of that was cash flow issues. So they were really, the indie indie brands were obviously very important to them. So they realized that that was part of the game. Yeah. It's awesome that they supported you that way. So, um, let's talk about how you actually got into Sephora because that was, you know, obviously a big deal. Well, it's easier than you think it is because Sephora came to the U.S. We were already in business for two years and lucky us, all of the big brands declined. Oh, they just didn't see the vision. The Lauder and L'Oreal brands did not see the vision of Sephora in the U.S. The business was in department stores. And so Sephora needed brands. And I think if all of those brands had said yes, we wouldn't have had a place there and we would have had to fight our way. But we, we raised our hand and said, absolutely, we want in. And it was a real game changer for us because then their strategy was all about developing indie brands, brands that weren't necessarily strongholds in department stores so it actually was easier than you think and one of the things I always talk about is that you know when I started the barriers to entry on starting a makeup company were really high but now the barriers to entry are really really low but the opposite is true with the retail piece Mm -hmm. like the barriers to entry to get into a retailer are really high now and back when I did it it was easier so was that the first store you were in 
Uh, no, Nordstrom actually. Nordstrom they actually saw the vision because Nordstrom had invested in Mac, mm-hmm. and Mac had become a huge and exclusive right. brand and business for mm-hmm. them. So when I actually got that buyer's name, I remember I called down to a few Nordstroms and you know got voicemail or whatever. But I called the one in San Diego, the regional buying office in San Diego, and a woman named Kimberly Heathman picked up the phone. She was the regional cosmetics buyer, and she said, "Well." Day after tomorrow, I'm going on vacation for two weeks, so you can come down tomorrow. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And of so, course, you get in your car and you go. So I like, you know, packed up, made my little samples all perfect and packed up and drove down there. And I just thought it was going to be like, you can relate to this, pitching at an ad agency. Right. That's where I come from. You go in, you kind of do the pitch. They give you some feedback. You go do the pitch again. Right. And then finally, after a few meetings, then you come to a resolution about, okay, they bought the campaign and we're going to do this media plan and all mm-hmm. that. I walked in, I did my pitch, and I was ready to pack up my stuff and come come back again. And she pulled out an order form and she started writing. And I was right like, on the spot, right on the spot. And I was <sighs> like, Oh my god, what am I gonna do? I gotta make this. Like, <laughs> I gotta make it happen. It became real very. It became fast. real very fast. And I remember calling Sandy from it was uh, Horton Plaza Mall in San Diego, and I remember standing at one of those little kiosks where they like engrave your name on a grain of rice, right. On my like little junk gigantic cell phone and calling Sandy and going, we got an order. So oh that was God. our first order. So exciting. Was there one retailer that you felt really put you on the map or was it a combination of a few of them? I think it was probably Sephora and Ulta. Mm-hmm. Between the two, those two retailers, they've been great partners. And I always tell people like, you're going to discover in life that partnership is just one of the greatest gifts the world has to give us, whether it's partners in business, partners in marriage, or for us partnering with retailers. I really believe like one plus one equals three. Agreed. We had a great like back and forth relationship with them where, you know, we got great feedback. Mm -hmm. They didn't really tell us what to do, but then they supported us. Mm -hmm. We supported them with exclusive, you know what I mean? Like it just was really about like, how do we build this business together? Yep. And I know times of change, it's not as easy. It's probably very difficult to get into those stores today. But to your point, it's easier to start a makeup brand. So it's kind of shifted. Right. It's shifted. And the good thing for new entrepreneurs, which I totally encourage, is, you know, have your own e-store. Like, there's so many opportunities online to be digitally native. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I actually want your perspective on this just with the whole e-commerce boom. Um, You know, a new brand starting online, you know, so much of makeup sometimes is like touching it and feeling it and smelling it and being next to it. Um, do you feel that it can be as successful not having a, a physical retail space to go look at it and try it? Well, I think that answer is always changing and it's always changing towards yes. I think even three years ago, I would have said, wow, you probably really need a physical store presence too, and at least in your major like, you know, key markets. But I feel like now more and more because shipping so easy back and forth right. most brands are as adopt- long as you have a good return policy return policy right people are willing to try things they're already going to ups to drop off all their returns right and so it just has become the new normal and people are shopping less in stores it's actually interesting because so i work in marketing and you know that um one of the big generations that's coming up that we're doing a lot of research on is gen z 
And something that we're learning is that they're actually craving to go back into the retail space. And so a lot of um, marketers are actually taking this, um, you know, this data and starting to figure out how to make things a bit more, you know, obviously the online component won't go away, but they're craving that ability to go back online just because they've been born and raised with technology. And so they don't, they're missing something in their lives. And so there's this kind of backlash that's happening. And so because of that, a lot of retailers are saying, you know what, we need to make sure that there is a physical place for them to be and to to experience the product well I think you definitely do I think my yes answer was more about like you can start a brand right. and not have to have a physical retail space right. but I do absolutely believe that I actually I I have Gen Zers myself and I they're fun aren't they they're so fun <laughs> and as a Gen Xer I don't feel dissimilar to my Gen Zers and their friends I feel like we have a lot of the same a lot in common a yes. lot in common and um so I'm not surprised that they want to go back into the retail space. I just think they're going to, as being sort of more wise global citizens, Correct. they're going to demand more from their retail 100%. experience than 100%. we ever demanded. Like yeah. we were okay to walk into a Contempo Casuals and buy a baby doll dress Contempo, off a bad yes. off a bad rack or Judy's did or Judy's. Judy's. Oh, I worked at Judy's. Oh, you did. I Me did. Too. I loved it. I worked there too. Yeah. Okay, now we're dating ourselves. Oh, no. Let's stop doing. That. Okay, um, but. Anyway, I just think they're going to really demand more than that basic chrome rack. Correct. They're going to demand more of, you know, that experiential piece along with along with the merch. Right. All right, let's talk about your famous naked palette. How okay. did that come about? So naked was really fun because I was traveling a lot and I was, you know, packing a makeup bag every trip, a unique makeup bag because, you know, I wanted my makeup to match my outfit, the whole thing. But I was always needed four kind of great basic nude shades to take along with me to then build a basic eye that I could put color on top of. So I went to two people I was working with closely in product development. I said, hey, tomorrow, bring in your four must-have if you were stuck on a desert island, couldn't live without basic nude shades. Got it. So... One was a blonde, one was a super, super fair, freckled, pale. I was a little darker. We all brought in our shades, and they were all completely different, except for we had one dupe. Okay. But we laid it out, and it was like a beautiful palette. And so... And so that inspired it. That inspired it. I was just like, well, let's call it naked. Let's take this one dupe out. We needed one more matte shadow, I felt like. So we did a shade called Bucked that was brand new and put it in there. And maybe tweaked a couple of the other ones to add a little less shimmer, a little more shimmer. But that was basically the Naked Palette was done in an instant. Crazy. Yeah. And you sold over 30 million of them. We sold so many of them, yes. And I think it made over a billion dollars, which is crazy. (laughs) I can't even like fathom what that means, especially because you started this company from nothing. Yeah. So congratulations. But, you know, a billion dollars out of the back of my car, of course, right? Of course, of course. Amazing. Um, and then you did something like unthinkable, um, which is you decided to discontinue it. Right. And I love how bold that is. That's so urban decay. Well, it was bold, but it was also a business decision. Right. But tell right. us why. Um, well, the, the sales were declining. And what we really saw was the Naked Palette when we created it in 2010 was really, um, I felt like really golden warm shades. And then I started to look at it and the way makeup had been evolving, and I always say Urban Inc. should be about constant evolution. The way makeup was evolving is things were going really much warmer, much sort of more ambery. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like the naked, original naked palette wasn't as relevant now as it was 
as it needed to be. And as we saw the sales declining and maybe things like naked heat really taking off and being huge, we felt like, well, now's really the moment to say goodbye to naked and provide people with another alternative, which ended up being naked reloaded. Right. So that's kind of what did it seem risky at the time or it just was clear cut. That was the right decision. Well, we knew I mean, because we are sold at Sephora, there's only so much real estate we have. It's not like a department store environment where you have a lot of space to continually add products. We needed to really create focus and uh, laser vision on the best naked products we could make. So we didn't want anything hanging out that didn't feel modern and fresh and relevant. So it felt like the right time to say goodbye before it was kind of a total has been totally right you didn't want it to be like so pathetic that it was like done Uh so we wanted to say goodbye when it was still like relevant and so we did a big funeral for it we made a big splash about it we didn't just say goodbye quietly we like made a big deal out of it interesting so i'm really interested about who your core demographic is because you were um obviously you know the the brand was born in the 90s Mm -hmm. and so you have a whole generation of gen x who um you know kind of grew up wearing your makeup and now obviously it's important to start to appeal to a younger generation so when you um you know go out there and do your marketing who is it that you're trying to attract? Is it a little bit of everybody? Is there kind of a core that you're going after? And my next question is, how do you like keep that base, those people that were so, so um, loyal to you, happy while attracting a new generation? Well, I think what's interesting is that people think when we started it, it was only for people in like high school and college. But what we found, we had a super strong sales team. And what we found was we could pull the daughter and then we could get the mother and the grandmother because the makeup's really high quality. Right. And so, you know, it's things like our 24-7 pencils that were bright and bold and glided on and lasted. Well, the daughter liked those because she could dance all night and sweat and they wouldn't come off. But grandma likes them too because grandma's got wrinkles and they wouldn't fade into her little fine lines. So we really had this makeup qualitative thing that really appealed cross generationally. Mm -hmm. Um, We're still trying to do that today. So obviously our messaging is targeted at a younger customer. Those customers, as you know, being a marketer, they drive brand love, right? And so we want to not say we're not still here for you for our customers who have been with us for the long haul because we are still there for them. And I'm one of those people. So, yeah, so as am yes. I. All right. So more men are wearing makeup now and it's not seen as exclusively female anymore. So how has shifting gender norms affected your business? Well, I think if you look back at our original brand statement that I wrote, the first line in it was makeup for girls and boys who want to show who the world who they are and put their own stamp on it. Really? Back then you were Back that? then. Oh, wow. So one of the things we would do to promote the brand was we would go to these like different fashion boutique trade shows. And there were always at trade shows, there are teamsters and guys who set up all the pipe and drape and all the things that go along with the trade show. And we would grab those guys and paint their nails. And so like you think about back in the 90s, I was like painting Teamsters nails and getting them all excited about the brand. And we were really, really committed from day one to being a makeup brand that could also appeal to men. And we knew we could because we were creating packaging that wasn't so feminine. We were creating packaging that, 
you know, guys wouldn't be embarrassed to have on their shelf. And right. I knew this was relevant because I had a boyfriend who I had some like drugstore concealer and it was like in a black chapstick container. Mm-hmm. And I would always find it missing because he was using it. Interesting. Right? So I knew that there was like makeup moments for men. I have caught my husband stealing my concealer a few times. Yes. He yeah. would kill me for saying that, but I swear I've, I've caught no, him covering a few No, he was using con- the concealer. And, yeah. yeah. And he does it super stealthy, too. He doesn't want I know. Well, I actually, you know, hopefully my husband won't hear this because he's really, he's much more fair than me. And he's really intense on our boys about, like, wearing a sun hat and wearing your sunscreen. Because, right, right. you know, they're fa- more fair than I am. And, but a lot of times they are teenagers and they forget and they come home red and they're like, mom, can you put the green on me? Right. Right. So I've got the green, you know, color corrector and I just like de-red them and like neutralize the sunburn. And so. Awesome. All right. So your um, Urban Decay is cruelty free and you guys have taken a stance against animal testing. Um, is this something that's always been a part of the company? Well, it is absolutely something that's always been part of the company. It's something Sandy and I both felt really strongly about from the very beginning. I mean, she is an animal rights activist. One of her stated goals was to have a spay and neuter clinic in every county in the United States. She was working towards that for a long time, and that was from the very beginning. Love it. Um, Our original statement about, we had it on every package, was we don't do animal testing. How could anyone? So we were doing this way before anyone was really on the animal rights thing. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of is that we have never in the entire history of the company made a brush out of animal hair. Wow. So we've always used synthetic fibers, even before they were really good. We like worked really hard to make the best brushes we could. And I remember the first time we shipped them to our UK distributor, they were like, no one's going to buy synthetic brushes. Everyone wants natural hair. You guys are crazy. We're going to send these back. We won't sell them. And I said, just, you know, you got to try. You got to try. And so they put them out. And then the next week they called me. They're like, they're all gone. People want them. We called them good karma brushes. They were awesome. And um, so I think we really started the whole trend of synthetic brushes. Awesome. So Urban Decay, as we mentioned, um, was one of, I guess you can probably consider it like the first indie makeup brand. Is that correct? Um, I would say Hard Candy was probably the first okay. indie makeup so brand. So one of the first, Yeah. Right? So I give Dina a lot of credit for getting this whole crazy indie brand thing off the ground. She's an incredible visionary and um, she really... I remember uh, we were working on the whole Urban Decay idea and I was like in my little like beach bungalow in Laguna mixing up colors. And I remember I had MTV on in the background and they did this little video on hard candy and I was like, oh, they beat us to it. Right. So you were around the same time. Around the same time. Yeah. So one of my questions, and I think this is really interesting. So right now, obviously, there's a lot of talk about indie brands in the makeup world, right? And it's really hard for some of the bigger brands to compete against these indie brands, because, you know, that's what all of the younger generation wants. So, um, you know, how does Urban Decay, as it's now um, been bought by a larger company, you know, fight to keep that kind of indie spirit going, you know, and still be owned by a larger brand? Well, I think that's why I'm here to make sure that everyone remembers that we are an indie brand and that we do stand for breaking the rules and challenging norms and doing things differently. I think the big companies now understand 
that the customer's not going to just take what they want to spoon feed them, right. that the customer's going to bring the trends to the companies and that we have to react. And right. that was kind of always our philosophy. So it's been great because they have, we've learned from each other. I think one of the things that big companies bring to small indie brands like the us are, you know, better, more ethical sourcing of materials, yeah. things like that, that they really have all the bandwidth to put behind um, their businesses. So mm-hmm. that's pretty exciting. And I think the we should talk about that. Like, we don't really talk about it um, in terms of what big business brings to smaller indie brands. Right. Um, so, and I think to answer your question about how it stays relevant, I think we're committed to that. Like I said, we've always been about constant evolution. And I've been through, I've been in this industry a long time and I've been through waves of lots of glitter and less glitter. I've been through waves of nail polish is hot, nail polish is not. And I've also been through waves of here's a bunch of new indie brands and then some of them disappear and some of them make it. And so that is always going to ebb and flow. And I think, you know, the bigger brands are always going to hopefully see their way through that. Yeah, I think a lot of um, when indie brands are bought by bigger companies, keeping the founders around is so important because the second the vision, the soul of the brand kind of goes away, I mean, obviously you can't stay forever, but um, you know, it's just, it's so important because obviously so much of uh, what you bring to the table is still kind of being infused through what everyone feels about your brand every day. So Good job to L'Oreal for doing that. Yeah. Well, we actually have our whole new uh, field here today and the afternoon. And that's one of my missions is to just talk to them and make sure they know, like, remember what this brand stands for. So right. And the fact that you do that, the fact that you're willing to sit down with us on this little indie podcast and do this shows your commitment to that as well. So thank you for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. And in in the true spirit of, you know, who you are and why you've built this brand. All right, so the next one's kind of a, a big question. What's next in beauty? I think it's hard to say what's next in beauty because I used to think I could predict things, but with social media, it has evolved so quickly. And what I've learned is as soon as I set a strategy, like that strategy needs to change. And so it's really hard to predict the future of beauty. But I do think there will be a shakeout with all like there's a huge proliferation of indie brands. And I do think there'll be a shakeout. And I do think do you think it's oversaturated right now? I do think it's a little oversaturated. So how is that going to shake out in your mind? I think you're going to have some brands that are going to rise to the top. And they're going to be some people that are going to have cash flow issues and aren't going to make it. Right. So it's just there's too much. There's, there's, there's a little too, too many much choices. It's hard to keep track. And when there's too many choices, I find and maybe you do as a marketer, too, that yes. people freeze up and they're like, well, I can't choose. so I'm not going to choose. Yeah. Especially in skincare, I stand in front of the wall and just try to like understand what all the ingredients are and what they mean to my face as I age. And it's so hard to understand what any of it means. Well, I'll tell you. You'll tell me your secret. I give your you secrets. some secrets. Okay. After, yeah. after the yeah. podcast, I want to know. Am. Okay. Unless you want to do a separate podcast another day on skincare <laughs> and <do> demystifying <laughs> from a you know beauty insider's point of view. All right. So what's next for you personally? Well, I am pretty excited that I'm still involved with Urban. Um, I'm excited. I would love to uh, write a book and talk about my experience. And I'm doing more speaking, which is really exciting. So I love doing stuff like that. I also love having a tiny bit more time to raise my kids. As you know, they mm-hmm. when they're young, they actually are fine as long as there's a loving adult around. Small kid problems are easy to solve, but teenager problems... Much different. Much different. And so 
I'm really have a lot of gratitude that I'm at a place in my career where I can focus on them when they need the focus. Beautiful. In your pre-interview, you mentioned that one of your biggest strengths is empathy. And this is also another pattern that I see with so many of the women on my show. Empathy is the word that always comes up as a strength. Talk about it. Well, I think being able to put yourself in other shoes, and I think it's something I've also developed. I think when I first started, I expected everyone to have the same kind of drive and commitment and everything that I had. But I quickly came to realize that everyone brings different strengths to the table. And you just have to learn to best tap into those strengths. And your role is really Empathy is really like coaching, right? You really need to coach your team to be the best they can be. And like light fires under some people, hold other people's hands. And it's really about understanding how people operate and really trying to like help them be the best they can. Beautiful. And you mentioned that one of your biggest weaknesses is that you want to resist making decisions based on data, which seems a little counterintuitive, but I love it. Tell me about that. Well, I just feel like everything's so overanalyzed like big data like it's just so impersonal and it kind of makes me sad inside my soul a little bit sometimes you have to just go with your gut right how you feel well I think you have to take some data right you have to come from a place of some sort of like smart analysis of what's happening Uh but I think yeah sometimes you have to then add that into what's right with your gut because I don't think everything can be predicted by numbers have you ever made a decision that goes against the data Yes. Happens often? Happens. Um, It happens. Yeah. I love to hear that. All right. So you might have mentioned this, but let's let me just ask anyway. Are there any female founded brands that have either started before or after you that are huge inspiration to you? I actually think like Spanx is a huge inspiration for me. Yeah, I've never amazing. met I've never met her, but I'm always impressed by, you know, how positive it's a positive message. Right, it's right. a body positive message while helping you look better and smoother in your skirt. Yeah, she's done a good thing. Um I think she's done a great thing. You know, I know Jamie from It mm-hmm. and I really admire her for bringing like self-confidence to beauty Uh and also having a similar like anti-animal testing kind of philosophy. I met Jen Atkin at Way. Uh I think I really admire her and she, you know, like she's so famous and she walked up to me at a Sephora conference and just treated me with so much like, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn from you. And you know, that. that just made me feel like, wow, like you're got like 5 million Instagram followers. Like, and I just, it was really, really nice. So I've met a lot of female founders that I've admired. I've also met a lot of like beauty industry, corporate women that I really admire a lot as well. So it's a great, it's a great industry to be a part of. Definitely. And so now that you've sold the company, but you're still a part of it, but what does success mean to you now? How's it changed? Well, I think success to me is really about... To me, it's always been about, even before selling the company, it's really about not not about me personally, but I get the most joy out of knowing that I've created like amazing jobs, fulfilling jobs for a lot of a lot of women, and they can be successful, they can buy cars, they can buy houses, they can support their families. And that to me is like so 
incredible that like this little thing I did turned into this ability for other people to have a great lifestyle and a great life. How many employees are in the company? In this office, there's about 180 to 200 um, in Newport Beach, but there's uh, other employees all over the country and in the field and all over the world. What a huge responsibility and an incredible accomplishment to be able to say that you've done that for so many people. Yeah. Unbelievable. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that's my last question. I know that uh, Callie has a few rapid fire questions for you. I'm but... scared of Callie. <laughs> One, she's, she's so she's not... darn pretty. She like, is. I can't stand it. She is. Thank you. Well, the questions aren't too bad. Um, we'll start off with what is your favorite beauty hack? My favorite beauty hack is spraying all night or setting spray onto my eyeshadow brushes and applying my eyeshadow so that it lasts extra long. Oh. Wait, hold on. Onto the brush? Onto the brush and then dipping the brush in the eyeshadow and then applying the eyeshadow. Ew. Someone told me to do that to my beauty blender too and I do that you with the You can totally do it spray. with your beauty blender and apply your makeup with it and then also spray again with the all night or setting spray and then you get kind of the double whammy setting. Yeah, yes. I could run a marathon in my makeup and it'll yeah. still be on. I crossfit in it and then do before and afters. It's pretty fun. <laughs> Love it. What is one makeup essential that you can never go without? Probably um, color corrector under my eyes. I like a little peach under the eyes. I feel like if I put some there and it just brightens everything up. One beauty staple that everyone should own. Everyone should own a good brow pencil because even if you do no other makeup, if you have a finish, finished brow, you look pulled together and sophisticated. One product from Urban Decay for those getting into the brand that they need to try. I would say it's either All Nighter Setting Spray or one of my favorites, on uh, Oldie But Goodies Eyeshadow Primer Potion. And Eyeshadow Primer Potion, here's another hack. If you have a blemish, as you know, it's really hard to keep concealer on like a hot, hard blemish because the skin's so taut and shiny. So if you put a little eyeshadow primer potion on and then put your concealer on top, it will last longer. Genius. Finally, what is your actionable advice for those listening? My actionable advice is that, uh, and my yoga teacher tells me this all the time, is like with when you have your health, anything's possible. And so I really believe like put yourself first and and try to be a healthy person. Get a workout in, eat good food. I mean, I'm not saying don't indulge here and there. It's the holiday, you know, we're right near the holidays while we're recording. Indulge a little. Indulge a little. I think I read in uh, Sarah Silverman's book, Mm -hmm. like she has this philosophy of anytime you're indulging, it's all about make it a treat. And I really took that to heart. Like whatever you're doing, whether it's illegal or legal, make it a treat. So I think there's, there's something to that. But when you have your health, really, you can do anything. So keep yourself healthy. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that is the end of our interview. I want to thank you again for taking the time to do this. It really, really means a lot to us. And it says so much about who you are. Again, the fact that you're willing to sit down with us and do this shows your true spirit and this really this idea of women supporting women. And so thank you so much. I've learned so much today. I really believe in women supporting women. And I actually love doing things like this because these thoughtful questions are they're good for anybody to have like sort of a good self-reflection. So it's kind of like therapy for me. So for I really sure. appreciate, I really appreciate the free therapy session. Absolutely. And you know, you're like a rock star to so many people. Oh, I mean, thanks. when I told my staff that I was coming here to interview you, they were just like giddy as if you oh. were, you know, like a famous movie star. So it's very cool. Well, I'm not that, but yeah. Very cool. Well, but thank I, you. But again. I wear sparkly eyeshadow. So. Yes, you do. Yeah. And you wear it very well. I have a lot of questions when we turn off the mics. Okay. Anyways, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.